What's up, everybody? This is the Disciple Makers Podcast brought to you by Discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. We're currently working our way through the track sessions from the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum that we just had a couple weeks ago. It was a great time, and there is some incredible material that was said and spoken in these breakout sessions, in these track sessions. So we believe you're going to enjoy this material. The previous episode was Better Man's first track session, brought to you by Chris Harper of Better Man. He's the executive director. This episode is going to be their second track session, and Chris has given us some very thought-provoking material. He discusses what it looks like to be good problems as men for the sake of the gospel. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. Let's jump in and hear from Chris Harper from Better Man. Here we go. Top of the morning to you. We're going to jump in uh, to track two this morning. Uh, yesterday we talked about um, largely the feminization of education, the feminization of uh, the workplace, what we're seeing as men are slow quitting, as they're resigning uh, from manhood and masculinity. Today, we're really going to look at feminization of the church. For much of the last 100 years, there's been a phenomenon in the Western church. Church historians, theological scholars call it the feminization of the church. Yesterday, we talked about serious gender gaps in education, in the workplace. Uh, one of the largest gender gaps we're seeing today is in the Western church. On average, congregations in the Western church, come on in, brother. Congregation in the Western church are 61% women and 39% men. On average, congregations in the Western church, 61% women, 39% men. And it's also worth noting that in all the latest research, whether that's Pew Research, Lifeway Research, whoever you go to for your research, all research points to the fact that women outpace men in practically every spiritual category. From prayer to small groups, women engage at a greater rate than men do. Doug Wilson was pastor of Christ Church of the Valley. Christ Church of the Valley grew to be one of the uh, largest churches in America, running somewhere between 25 and 30,000 people every week. Um, he kind of became infamous or made national attention when they asked him one day, why don't you have a men's ministry at your church? It's a big church, seven campuses in the valley. Pastor Wilson, why don't you have a men's ministry at your church? And he started laughing and he, he responded and said, because my whole church is a men's ministry. He said, everything we do is a men's ministry. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, did you know that statistics show, and I've looked this up and it differs depending on who you're reading. It differs a little bit, but it, but it all rings true. He said, did you know that in a home when the children... When the children are first to come to faith, that somewhere between 10 and 12% of the time, the rest of the family will come to faith and actively engage their faith. He said, when mom, when mom is the one that comes to faith, 
He said somewhere between 20 to 23% of the time, the rest of the household will come to faith and actively engage their faith. He said, but when dad, when dad is the one to come to faith and lead in his faith, he said 93% of the time, the rest of the household comes to faith and actively engages in their faith. And Doug Wilson said, if that's true, then 93% of everything we do is aimed at the men. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a great children's ministry, and you should. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have a thriving women's ministry, you should. But I'm telling you, if we are neglecting men's ministry, if we are neglecting reaching the men, we are missing the boat. Because when you win the men, when the men actively engage, when the men take hold of their faith, it literally changes everything. If you look at most church budgets today, because we put our money where our mouth is, if you look at most church budgets today, you will not see a strong emphasis on winning and engaging men. You will see a strong emphasis on children. You will see a strong emphasis on women. You will see a strong emphasis on the Sunday gathering, which is specifically what we're going to talk about today. One of the things that men need to be engaged, one of the things that men need to be activated is the Word of God, the Logos. Hebrews 4.12 says, this Word is living and active. How many people in here believe that this morning? Oh, I believe it, men. I believe the Word of God is living and active. And men today need the Word of God. I will tell you in the history of man, in the history of the printing press, never have we been more biblically illiterate than we are today. Biblical illiteracy is an all-time high. As a matter of fact, if you come back for the next session, we're going to talk about biblical and theological illiteracy, and we're going to look at a study that Ligonier has been producing since 2014, and I'm going to show you some trends on how we are getting further and further from God's truth. Let me tell you the number one thing that affects men. This affects men. It's our feelings supersede what we know. Our feelings supersede what we know to be true. In his seminal book, Spiritual Depression, written by the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, he talks about spiritual depression. And one takeaway from the book, probably the biggest takeaway from the book, I love what he says. He says, we need to stop listening to ourselves and we need to start preaching to ourselves. Preaching the Word of God to ourselves. The truths that we know... To be true, in this book, too many men today, they are dictated by their feelings. They are dictated by their experiences, by their emotions. Their feelings supersede what they know. I took my son to Target recently. He's been, he's been, my son, my nine-year-old's been crushing it, man. He's just been crushing it. I said, come on, son, we're going to go get a Lego set. Let's go to Target. We're going to get a Lego set. And we're going to build this thing together this weekend. So we go to Target. And we're in the aisle, and this you know, you know how Target is. Um, they put the real expensive stuff up top, and then the super expensive stuff on the bottom, so the kids can grab it. And then they put the they put the mid stuff in the middle. And I told my son, "Hey, you can't get anything up here, can't get anything down here, but right here, this is your sweet spot, right in here." 
So he grabbed a Lego set. He said, Dad, I want this one. I said, let's go. We're going to go build that. And as we're, as we're walking down the aisle, he sees another one out the corner of his eye. And he said, oh, I really like this one. And he grabbed it. And then he's, my, my eight-year-old son is standing there, and he's holding these two Lego sets. And he said, Dad, I don't, I don't know which one I want. And rightly so, I've taught him this. He's a good negotiator. He said, can I have both? <laughs> I said, no, son, you, you have to choose one. You can only have one. I told you you could have one. You choose one. We're going to go home and build this thing. You pick one. And he literally broke down in the middle of Target. He's crying because he said, Dad, I love them both. I just can't choose between them. I, I, I just want them both. I can't choose. And I, and I, I gently and lovingly, I put my, put my arm on my son. I said, hey, son, Malachi, just go ahead and put them both up. I said, we don't get a Lego set today. I said, go ahead and put them both up. I said, we can't let stuff dictate our emotions like this. So he turns and he puts the two Lego sets up and I'm walking him out of Target and I said, son, I need you to say, I won't let stuff dictate how I feel. He says, I won't let stuff dictate how I feel. I said, okay, I want you to say it a little louder. I won't let stuff dictate how I feel. By the time we got to the checkout, I said, scream it, son. I will not let stuff dictate how I feel. And everybody in Target's just staring at me <laughs> as I'm walking this eight-year-old crying through the store, chanting, I will not let stuff dictate how I feel. Same thing happened to my daughter, my 10-year-old daughter. She lost her lunchbox. She said, honey, you need to take Scarlett to go get a lunchbox. I said, great, I'll take her to lunch and we'll get a lunchbox. So we go to lunch and then we go to the mall and we go to one of these little 10-year-old girl stores. And I said, honey, you go and you pick you out a lunchbox. I'm so excited to get you a lunchbox. So she went and she grabbed a lunchbox and she brought it to me. And it was purple and it had a giant unicorn on it. And I'm good with that. But at the bottom of the lunchbox, real big in sequence, it said, believe in yourself. I said, oh, honey, you're going to have to put that back. She said, why? I said, well, we don't believe in ourselves. Who do we believe in? She said, we believe in Jesus. <laughs> and she goes to put the lunchbox back. Two women in the store turn and scold me. Tell me how I'm a terrible father. Had a 17-year-old man 17-year-old man, he's actually at Fisk University. One of the reasons I agreed to come and speak and do this this weekend was because I get to have dinner with him tonight. He plays basketball at Fisk, one of the historic HBCUs right here in Nashville. Can't wait. Can't wait to see him tonight. I've been mentoring him for years. I remember, I remember when he came to me in high school. He was a standout high school hooper, and he said, he said, Pastor Harp, he said, man, I'm thinking about getting a tattoo. I said, you are? I said, have you thought about it? He said, yeah, I think about getting a tattoo, and obviously I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. I said, well, what type of tattoo are you going to get? He said, I'm going to get a tattoo that says, believe your truth. I said, bro, you're an idiot. He said, what do you mean? I said, first of all, you're 16. You don't even know what you believe. And I hope what you believe now, you ain't believing the same thing 30 years from now. I said, and secondly, you don't want to believe your truth. Let me tell you whose truth you want to believe, King yeah. Jesus. I said, get that tattooed on your neck. I believe King Jesus is true. That's the tattoo. That's the move. We have to be grounded in the truth of God's word. And here is the problem. Most men today do not know this word. Yeah. 
As Paul told Timothy, you make good deposits, good deposits into your heart. Why? Because at some point you have to make a withdrawal. And I'm telling you, there are men in the church, outside the church. There are men wanting to make withdrawals and it is coming up insufficient funds. And as Bible teachers, as pastors, as leaders of men, we have to be saturating men in this word. We have to be giving them this word. I don't have time to unpack in this hour how all we do that and where all we do that. So what I'm going to do is just dive in on Sunday mornings. Most of us are involved in some form or fashion in Sunday mornings. And I know it's a 61-39 split, but you got 39% of the men in there. And on Sunday mornings, we need to be giving them this word. Now, I am a Mark Dever trained nine marks guy. So I believe that if you want to give somebody the word of God on Sunday mornings, morning, you do it in five ways. You read the Bible, you preach the Bible, you pray the Bible, you sing the Bible, and you see the Bible. This is what men need. This is what men need to see us as pastors, as leaders doing. One, we read the Bible. Paul told Timothy, devote yourself to the what? To the public reading of Scripture. Not just the private reading of Scripture, the public reading of Scripture. There is something powerful and active about the Word of God as it is proclaimed. I used to tell my worship leader all the time, bro, just read the Scripture. You don't have to give an exegesis afterwards. Just let it stay out there. You don't have to unpack every verse. Just read the Scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, 1 Timothy 4.13. Churches, pastors should read Scripture out loud in all of their gatherings. Secondly, we need to preach the Bible. Paul told Timothy, preach the Word, 2 Timothy 4.2. Paul himself declared the whole counsel of God to the church of Ephesus, Acts 20, verse 27. Church gatherings today should be centered on sermons that take the main point of a passage of Scripture, what we call a pericope. Make it the main point of the sermon and apply it to a man's life. Preach the Word. I want to know what the Word says. I don't want to know what you think or what you feel. I hate it. I hate it when, when, churches, when churches start the, the, the service off with, how are y'all doing this morning? We, we, we do this in Texas. How are y'all doing this morning? How are y'all feeling this morning? And what I want to say is, bro, you don't want to know how I feel. I feel like slapping my wife because she made me late today. I feel like disowning my kids because I can't get them to obey what I'm saying. I feel like a failure because I don't have a nicer car than my neighbor. That's how I'm feeling today. Don't ask me how I feel. Tell me what I need to know. That's how we start. Tell me what I need to know. I need verity. I need to know what this word says. So we preach the Bible. Thirdly, we pray the Bible. Paul urges that prayers be made in the gathered church where the people of God gather together. First Timothy 2.8. He does it again in first Timothy chapter three. Pray the Bible. The content of these prayers should be biblical in order to edify all those who are present. First Corinthians 14.12. 
This doesn't mean that prayers in a church service or a gathering should be dry and formal, but they should be biblically rich. And if you don't know what to pray, pray a song. Pray a proverb. I'll tell you how Dever does it, how the nine marks guys do it. They pray for three things. They pick another church in the city to pray for, that they pray for every time during the service. They pick something in their body that they pray for. So they pray for the gathered church, and then they pick something. For example, a hurricane hits Florida. They pick something that's in the national or international news that they pray for, and they do that every week. But through that prayer is just interlaced Scripture. Four, we have to sing the Bible. Paul told the church at Colossae, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Colossians 3.16. Now I'm going to dive deep in this in a minute, but this doesn't mean that churches should only sing psalms or only words of the Bible, but it does mean that churches should sing songs that are soaked in the language and theology of the Bible. And lastly, we see the Bible. We say see the Bible because the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, to use Augustinian phrase, are visible words. In baptism and the Lord's Supper, we see, smell, touch, and taste the Word of God. When churches gather, they should celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper during the gathered public services, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. So those are the five things. Read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, see the Bible. Let me tell you why this is not happening, or at least not happening for men. It's because most churches, um, most churches, and I'm just going to say this, don't be mad at me. Most churches listen to philosophies like, like ones from Peter Drucker than they do from the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, in the modern church, I would say the great saint of the model church, the modern church is Peter Drucker. Who said things like, you have to give your customers what they want. You have to know your customer inside and out so that you can form everything around your customer to meet the needs of your customer, to meet your customer where they are. As a matter of fact, what your customer wants is what you should be giving. We have this kind of Coke consumeristic mentality. You know, Coke is in more places than Jesus. That's true. And if you want a great marketing strategy, a marketing scheme, just follow Coca-Cola. When the Berlin Wall came down, Coke had representatives in East and West Germany passing out six packs and 12 packs. Coke's in more places than Jesus. And what we've done in the church is we've catered to our base. And the base in the church today is women. Thus we see consciously and unconsciously, we cater to our base. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't meet the needs of women. Meet the needs of women. But what you see in the modern church today is a very feminized church. First, we see it in our feminized theology. Research has shown that women are more likely to imagine God as characterized by love, forgiveness, and comfort, while men picture Him in terms of power, planning, and control. All those things are aspect of God's character. 
But notice, women, when you say God, what comes to their mind is love, forgiveness, and comfort. When you say God, what comes to the mind of a man is power, planning, and control. With more women than men belonging to churches, it's not surprising that modern theology and messages from the pulpit are more about passion and less about power. Modern sermons tend to de-emphasize the need to suffer, the need to fight, the need to take up your cross and sacrifice for the gospel and others. Today, the emphasis is on the gospel as a path towards greater self, self-fulfillment, self-realization. The gospel is presented not as a heroic challenge, but as therapy the way to overcome your shortcomings and to live your best life now, which is a terrible title for a book. If this is my best life, go ahead and shoot me. My best life is to come. I have a record. I have been kicked out of two barns and nobles for putting gospel tracts inside that book. I go, to gospel, I go to Barnes and Nobles and I take gospel tracts and I just put them inside that book. I've been kicked out of two. The modern gospel is contrary to Jesus' actual message. Whereas Jesus promises suffering, trial, and pain, today's Christianity is marketed as the antidote to suffering, trial, and pain. And this is what is indicative of these changes is the way churches no longer talk about... I want you to think about this. Churches no longer talk about the kingdom of God. Instead, we are the family of God. Hear the difference in that. We no longer talk about how we're the kingdom of God. Instead, we are a, uh, the, the family of God. In the kingdom of God, there is pursuit and there is purpose. There is a king and his loyal subjects on mission moving towards this ultimate conquest. In the family of God, there is, there is less purpose and more relation. There's less fighting and more hugging. Each member of the family of God has a relationship with each other and with King Jesus. And not just any kind of a relationship with Jesus, but a personal relationship with Jesus. Did you know the number one evangelical term today is have a, have a what? Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is nowhere in Scripture. I challenge you. Come see me. Send me an email. It is nowhere in Scripture. That phrase is not in Scripture. Why do we use have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? We use it because it caters to women. That's what women want. Women want a personal relationship. Women want someone that they can go and have drinks with at Starbucks. They're looking for a personal relationship. Men are not interested in a personal relationship. Men want a captain to follow. Men want a king to be loyal to. Men want somebody to take the next hill with. They're not interested in a personal relationship. I love what David Murrow says. He says it's almost impossible to tend to attend an evangelical worship service these days without hearing this phrase, personal relationship with Christ, spoken at least once. 
While a number of biblical passages imply a personal relationship between God and man, the term personal relationship with Jesus never appears in Scripture. Nor are individuals commanded to enter into a relationship with God. Yet despite its absence from Scripture, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ has become the number one evangelical term used to describe the Christian walk. Why? Because it frames the gospel in terms of a woman's deepest desire. A personal relationship with a man who loves her unconditionally. It's image that delights women, but it repeals men. When Jesus Christ called his disciples, he did not come and say, have a personal relationship with me. No, he said, follow me. Follow me. Again, you need to hear the difference in this. The term follow me suggests we're on a mission. A personal relationship suggests that we're going to have intimate time. But follow me says we are on a mission. We are going somewhere. And and people think that a softer, less strenuous and divisive message would be appealing to both men and women alike. But it's not true. This is what men consciously and unconsciously, they long for this. Men long for a harsh Affection. They love a coach who yells at his players to give every ounce of effort. And if you're an athlete in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You love that coach that wanted to wring the very best out of you. None of us had a coach that said, hey, man, come on, let's go get a lemon loaf (laughs) and a cappuccino. Let's talk about how you missed that block. Man, men desire what I, what, what I call that harsh affection. And I'm not even sure that I like that term, but it's the only term I could come up with. We love a teacher who demands the impossible from us. And as Western society continues to feminize, it's getting harder and harder for men to, kind, to, to find this kind of love. So our theology and, and, and the way we present the Bible, it's become flowery. It's become... It's become feminized. I I need to talk about the music. In the late 20th and 21st centuries, praise and worship music replaced hymns in many Western churches. Onward Christian soldier gave way to oceans and reckless love. God is no longer a mighty fortress. He's more of a good, good father. Now, Now, praise and worship has less of a, a... an appeal than, than owed hymns uh, uh, for men, and it has, and it has many ways, it has harmed men's worship more than it has helped. And I know this is a touchy subject, so like we're not going to debate just praise and worship versus hymns. I just, I just want you to hear the difference. Again, listen to Merle. He says, he says, praise and worship. It, it indicates that that while praise and worship is very appealing to some men, it's a turnoff for many more. Before praise and worship, Christians sang hymns about God. But praise and worship songs are mostly sung to God. The difference may seem subtle, yet it completely changes how worshipers relate to the Almighty. Praise and worship introduced a familiarity and an intimacy with God that is absent in many hymns. With hymns, God is out there. He's big, powerful, dangerous. He's a leader. With praise and worship, God is at my side. He's close. He's intimate. He's safe. He's he's a lover. Now, many people may see this, this shift from, from greater intimacy in worship as a, as a good thing, but on many levels, it, is, it, 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 it has been detrimental to, to men. It, it, it ignores a deep need in, in, in men. 
the reality as a man, I don't feel comfortable um, singing about drowning in an ocean of God's love. I just don't. It just doesn't hit me the same. As a matter of fact, I feel funny when I sing that. Like, like, like I'm looking around thinking, like, are other men singing this? Like, am I supposed to be singing about drowning in an ocean of his love? Like, I don't even know how to wrap my head around that. Which is why when you go to churches today, you can't see this because there's, the lights are down. But if you were to turn the lights up, you would see women singing and men just kind of doing this. Maybe they're humming, maybe they're, I don't know. But it's, but it's, in, but it's in, in, in every church. Like, again, I'm speaking generally, but, but you see it. The women are singing out. Why? Because the music, the songs, the, 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 the lyrics are, are appealing to them. Men, men appeal to and, and, and are appealed by the reverence of God, that God is holy other. Instead, we want men through music to relate primarily to God as a lover which is why the language that is used in praise and worship songs is, is completely different today than, than the language of, of the hymns of old, right? Your love is extravagant. We sing that today. Your friendship, it is intimate. We sing that today. I feel I'm moving to the rhythm of your grace. What man in his right mind gets down with that? I don't even know what that means. Your fragrance is intoxicating in this secret place. This forces a man to express his affection to God using words he would never, ever say to another man. Even a guy he loves. Even a guy named Jesus. I've never said to another man, man, the fragrance of God's love is so intoxicating in my secret place. You know what I'm talking about? My friends would punch me in the face. (laughs) And they love Jesus. Yet we're called to sing these songs to, to one another. It doesn't even feel natural coming out of our, of our mouths. So we've got this flowery theology and we've got this feminized worship. And then, and then we, have the, we have the feminization of the church itself. Right? The feminine aesthetics. I mean, you've seen, you've seen the carpet in this building. You've seen the colors on the walls. It's, it's, it's typical of every church. It has an appeal to women. The design of our church. There's a reason why today most modern churches are designed like shopping malls. Big glass fronts, big entries. You feel like you're walking into Macy's, not into Christ Chapel. Right? It appeals, it appeals to women. And not to mention, not to mention pastors. Here, here's the interesting thing about pastors and men in general. If we don't know how to keep score, and if we don't know how to play in the arena, we won't enter into it.
Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community. For disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today. If we don't know how to keep score, if we don't know how to play, if we don't know how to win, we won't engage it, which is why most pastors do not preach and talk about masculinity and manhood because they don't know how to win in that space. And they don't feel like they're winning in that space because they've let their wives down or they've let their children's down or they haven't been a good husband or a good father that week. And because they don't know how to keep score, because they don't know how to play in that space, they gravitate away from that, which is why most pastors today, men who are pastors, they are confident and they are assured when they're preaching to women. You see it everywhere. But because we can't keep score and because we can't win in that, in that manhood space, we'll, 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 we'll retract. And, and, and I see it. I just, uh, uh, my, my former church, man, I, I got super upset one day. The, uh, we, we, we do a big women's conference, right? So, so, and it lasts for three days. So on that Sunday, you can tell a noticeably difference in the sanctuary that there's no women in the sanctuary. This is all men because all of our women are at some big thing that we host. And, and I'll never forget, I'm there that Sunday and the worship leader, like he's on stage and he's trying to be cute and he makes this comment. He makes this dad joke and he says, um, if you notice all the children in church today uh, wearing shirts that are three sizes, is too small or three sizes too big, you know that our women are away at conference and the men had to dress them this morning. Of course, everybody in the church politely laughs, right? Because maybe it's semi-true, but I'm just sitting there thinking, bro, like we've won the women enough with the dad jokes. Because I find that offensive. Like I find that offensive. I can raise my children. Now, praise God that my wife is there. But I'm telling you right now, if she doesn't make it home tonight, my children are going to be okay because they have their father. And I'm not so incompetent. I'm not so chaotic that I can't dress my three-year-old. So what I don't need is a guy on stage that has longer hair than my wife telling me that I'm incompetent apart from my wife. We've won the women enough with the dad jokes. I already feel uncomfortable sitting here. I already feel uncomfortable in this space in hues of pink and burgundy and purple, singing about drowning in an ocean of love, hearing a message about how I should be in touch with myself. I already feel uncomfortable, so please don't make fun of me. (laughs) 
Is that too much to ask? Is that too much to ask? We need to think about how we are orchestrating and arranging and designing our gathering because consciously and sometimes unconsciously, we are appealing more to women than we are to men. And here's what's happening. If you are by chance delivering the word of God, most men have already checked out before they even entered the door. And it's hard to receive it when you've already checked out. It's hard to receive it when you already check out. I think one of the reasons most men today are biblically illiterate is because they, they're not seeing a Jesus, they're not seeing a church that they're comfortable following. They're just not. They walk into these churches and they see white Jesus in a long flowing dress. Looks like he would drive a Prius. If you drive a Prius, I ain't mad at you. <laughs> gas, gas was terrible. It's great gas mileage. But they look at this guy. Jesus ain't even white. First of all, he's Middle Eastern. Yeah. Scriptures say that he went and hid in Egypt. Right. White people go to hide in Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> right. Not Egypt. Right? And they see this picture and it's getting, it's getting blasted everywhere and then we're just singing songs about His love. And, and man, before we even get to this, before we even open this up and jump into this, man, so many men are already disconnected. I'm telling you, as preachers and as leaders of men, give men a captain to follow. Give men a king to submit to. Man, put the, put the meekness and humility of Jesus on display. Do that. But also put His power and authority on display. We live in a culture now, from the Me Too movement on, we've been railing against power and authority for so long. We've been talking about the misuse and, and abuse of power and authority for so long that we've forgotten the value of power. We've forgotten the value of authority that there is social order and structure in God's kingdom that is undergirded by submission to a king. And power is not a bad thing. Authority is not a bad thing when it's rightly wielded. I'll quote Dallas Willard again from yesterday. God's chief aim is looking upon the earth and trying to find men he can entrust with his power. That's what he's looking for. Let's put a powerful, passionate Jesus on display. I love, I love that Jesus never divorces his convictions from his compassion. I love in Revelation, we read that in one, one verse, he's the lamb, and in another verse, he's the lion. And here's what typically happens in the Western church. We want to divorce one from the other. We have churches that are just focused on this lamb aspect of Jesus. They don't really know what they believe. They don't really know what they stand for. But he's good and he's compassionate and he wants to love the marginalized. So that's what we're going to do. These churches tend to be more progressive. They tend to be more social justice centered and focused. Not that that's a bad thing. Don't hear me say that. But you can't divorce his lambness from his lionness. 
and it's bad the other way when all you focus on is on power and authority and Jesus is this lion, right? And you get this cold, dead orthodoxy, right? You get people showing up at funerals and protesting and crazy stuff like that, right? He was a lamb, absolutely, but he was a, he, he was a lamb as well. We don't get to divorce his compassion from his conviction. I've got a buddy who who went to seminary with me and um, he, he's, well, he just annoys me. And, and, and I love him. He's my brother in Christ. He's super, super, super conservative, um, like, like way conservative. He was an Air Force guy. He's a pilot, right? So he's telling me this story. He said, he said, man, Chris, I was getting ready to do a flight the other day. And he said, the stewardess on the flight, we were getting ready to gather on the flight. He said, the stewardess on the flight was going through this transgender process. He was a man becoming a woman. He said he was showing off and showing all the pictures of his progress and this and that and showing pictures from this and that. And he said, finally, Chris, I had enough of it. And I thought, oh, dear God, here we go. (laughs) Please tell me you didn't blast this fool. He said, so I looked at him. I said, hey, man, let me see that phone. He said, the stewardess handed me the phone and I looked at it. And I said, I would never do that. Stewardess said, do what? He said, wear those shoes with that dress. (laughs) Next time you wear that dress, you better wear blue shoes, he said. He said, Chris, it was amazing the gospel conversation that opened after that. He said, I spent the next hour and a half on that flight sharing Jesus with that man. Man, he didn't divorce his convictions from his compassions, and I surely thought he would have. I said, what a great approach. Man, we can be strong and we can exude power and authority and we can stand firm on our convictions, but we can also love people in Christ. You don't have to divorce those two things. We need to push back against this, against this feminization in the church. And, and, and it's so Man, I get it. The women are volunteering. The women are leading Sunday school. The women are in the nursery, right? We even, I even go to churches now where the women are out parking the cars, right? Even the job that used to be reserved for men. They're out parking the cars now and they're greeting at the door like, like, like I get it. They're making the church go, but we've got to start to, to, to shift that. What we talked about yesterday, we've got to start letting men know that we need them. I cannot stress that enough as a pastor, as a ministry leader. When is the last time you looked at the men under your influence and said, men, we need you. We need you. And we don't just need you to park cars like we need you in the nursery. We need you in the youth ministry. We need you packing lunches and boxes and serving the poor. Men, we need you. I'm telling you today, men do not hear that enough. Men only hear that they're a problem. Men only hear that they're not needed. They need to know that they are needed. And it starts with us. We've got to let men know that they're needed. We've got to tell the older men in our church to tell the younger men, you're needed. I'm tired of guys complaining about these millennials and these these gen whatever just sitting around and playing video games. I had a guy complaining about that not too long ago. All these kids want to do is sit around and play video games. And I looked at the guy and I said, then go to his house, knock on his door and say, come on. Do that. Go to his house, knock on his door and say, hey, man, a man doesn't sit around and play video games today. Come to my house and we're going to chop wood. 
That 23-year-old boy will put down the controller and go chop wood because he's never done that. And that will be an experience. I had an employer years ago tell me, we don't get points for predicting the rain. Any idiot can look at the sky and tell it's going to rain. You only get points for building boats. So build boats. If you're tired of young men not engaging, then pick them up and say it's time to engage. Take the initiative. Make the effort. If we start to do these little subtle things, I'm telling you, we can win back the church. That 6139, we can change that. Over time, we can change that. We can see more and more men engage. I think it starts on Sunday morning. I think it starts by saturating everything in the Word of God and giving them the true and full, complete picture of Jesus Christ. Thoughts, questions, comments, concerns from today. Let's open it up to questions. Absolutely. So um, it's, it's, it's throughout history, people like Augustine and others have said it. Lately, it's been popularized by a guy named Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson did a four-part series. He's a Canadian philosopher. He did a four-part series called Monsters, Men, and Dragons. Okay, it is worth watching, but um, I encourage people to eat the fish and spit out the bones. Okay, he's not, he's not necessarily deeply theological. Okay, but he talks about psychologically what is inside men, who men are, what they're made of, and what we've done in society today is we wanted to tame men. We wanted to tame men instead of letting men be who God has created them to be. I'll tell you one of the ways this has played out just in my life. I don't like to give personal stories, but in my life personally, a lot of what God has created to me to be, I have ceded or conceded to other people in my life. Especially the, uh, uh, the, more, the more busy I get, uh, the more I progress professionally, right? The more, the more money I bring in, I see myself giving stuff away, right? Like, well, I want to save time here, so I'll pay someone to cut my line. Or I want to save time here, so instead of fixing this, I'll bring in a plumber, right? I'll do these sort of things. And before I've known it, um, I'm 40 now, and I don't really know how to do anything. I just don't. Um, when my family wants to eat, I don't have to go kill anything and skin it and cook it. I just call Uber. And it's phenomenal. And it shows up at my door, right? And I've noticed I've started just to concede a lot of what, of what manhood and masculinity and kind of these natural giftings and things that God has given me. And I'm not saying like be an expert in all things. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is you should know enough like not to be taken advantage of. You should know enough about the workings of your car that when you take it to the shop and the guy tells you you need $1,700 in repairs, you'd be like, ah, I don't think so, man. Right? I mean, you should know that much. You don't have to be an, a professional landscaper, right? You can hire a landscaping people to come and landscape your home, but you should know enough that A, you're not being taken advantage of, and B, that you could give a little insight to what you want. One of the things I've started doing, I've started doing in the last year, is just I've just started carrying a pocket knife. Like, I've never done that. Like, I've never been in a situation where I had to knife anybody. Like, like I'm, 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 I'm a very kind of metro, like, um, four-star, five-star. I don't really like to camp. Like, that's, that's just, just who I am, right? But I've started carrying a pocket knife. It's been phenomenal. It's been phenomenal how useful I've become as a man with a pocket knife. At least once or twice a day, someone says, do you have a knife? I've never heard that until I started carrying one. 
It's amazing. And I tell you, in, in all the things I've done in the last year, my most prideful moment was riding in my truck with my daughter and one of my daughter's friends saying, hey, do we have a knife to open this? And my daughter saying, my daddy always has a knife. I almost wanted to pull the truck over and cry. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right, baby girl. I do always have a knife. <laughs> Here you go, use it. I mean, I just love that utility. Right? And I think today, uh, a lot of us men, we've given that utility away at the sake of convenience or at the sake of ease or at the sake of time. We've just given it away. So, so like, start to pull some of that back. I just, I just uh, interacted with a guy who lives in New York City, and, and, and he, had, had, he had heard some of this thought. So he just started growing a tomato plant outside of his flat. He's like, man, I don't have a garden or anything to tend or anything like that. He said, but I, but I did start with this tomato plant. He said, and he said, the other day, man, I, I, I picked one of the tomatoes and had a BLT. He said, it was phenomenal. <laughs> He's like, that's my tomato. <laughs> it didn't come from Sprouts, right? I feel awkward walking in Sprouts anyways. I just hate the name. <laughs> Somebody should create a manly grocery store. <laughs> Meat, et cetera. <laughs> like that should be the name of it. <laughs> Right? But he talks about this tomato that he grew, right? We've just conceded a lot of, of, of our utility and a lot of our masculinity. So, so I, I would say kind of start there, you know, encouraging that. Um, you know, and just don't assume that all men want to see is a car show and a barbecue. Like, like, like let's not just assume that's the only thing that's going to attract men or, or, or engage men. Right. Um, there are some there are some things that are just unique to manhood. Right. Like I'm the protector of my home. How many men really know how to protect their home? And I don't care if you're a believer or an unbeliever. You hear someone kick in your front door. You're not going to roll over and look at your wife and say, hey, honey, go check that out. Like you just won't. Right. Like there's something in us that won't allow us to do that. But how many people really know how to go check that out? You want to have a great men's event? Find a military person in your home and tell all the men of your church, hey, we're going to learn how to clear a room today. You'll have more men show up than, than you'll have at any car show. We're just going to learn how to, how, to, how to military tactically clear a room. And then it's you as the preacher, as the teacher, weave some theology into that. Talk about how, how we use the power of God's word and the power of, of, of God's spirit to clear the rooms in our hearts, right? Of the enemy, of those things lurking and creeping in the shadow, right? Tell them about scripture, the two lions that scripture talks about, right? The lion of Judah and the lion that's roaming, ready to devour you. Tell them the only difference is one's on the throne and the other's on a leash. Come on. Right? You'll have men show up to that. Absolutely. They'll take some of that back, right? Great question, man. I think, I think usefulness and utility is key moving forward with men. So I want to talk real quick about the Lord's design. The greatest sermon ever preached was the Beatitudes because the greatest preacher ever preached it. That's why it's the greatest sermon ever. It's the greatest preacher, right? So Jesus tells us who we are in Him. And, and he wraps it up by saying that, that, that we are salt. And, and I've heard this preached a thousand different ways, right? 
You're the salt of life. Salt is natural to life. Like go out and give life. You're a preservative, right? You need to preserve the kingdom of God. And you, you hear all these things about salt. So a couple of years, I was really taken by that. So I jumped into a deep word study on salt. And here's what I think. I think we've been preaching this wrong for the last hundred years. That's a big statement. I don't read anything that's not a hundred years old because anytime I think I have a new idea, it's probably heresy. Like if someone hasn't thought about it before me, because I'm not that sharp, right? But man, I did this biblical word study on salt, and here's what I discovered. Man, when the Bible talks about salt, it's not, it's not necessarily a preservative. It's not a flavoring of life. Salt is destructive. It's destructive. When Lot's wife turns back, she turns into a pillar of salt. When Abimelech wants to take Shechem, he salts the lands so nothing can grow and he starves out the enemy. Same thing happened in the Jerusalem wars, in the Palestinian wars of of, of 60 and 70. They salted the land. When Jeremiah would, would, would bring in a newborn baby, he would pat the baby with salt to kill off any impurities and affection. Jesus literally says there in Matthew 5.13 that you are salt on the G, literally salt on the land. Not salt of the land, but the literal translation is salt on the land. This is what I think Jesus meant. I think Jesus meant that we're destructive. That as men, everywhere we go, as his salty disciples, we are literally pushing back and killing off evil and darkness anywhere it grows. That that's who we are. Jesus doesn't say, um, I've offered you this dish. Um, sin has ruined the dish. Put a little salt on it and let's make the dish palatable. No, he says, throw that crap out the window because I'm bringing in something new. And he welcomes us to this feast, to this banquet. And as his salty disciples, as salty men, everywhere we go, we are destroying things. Destroying evil. Destroying darkness, destroying passivity, destroying sin. You had best be fighting sin, killing sin before sin starts killing you, John Owen. That everywhere we go, we're pushing back against these evil forces. And I think men have lost that call. I don't think they see themselves as destructive or as a beast that needs to be tamed. I don't think they see themselves as a problem. I love, I love, um, um, representative, uh, Chicago, John, what was his name? March with, March with Dr. King. Can't think of his name right now. John Lewis just passed away recently. He would always say, be a problem, but be a good problem. I love that. When's the last time you told your men that? I was just telling my nine-year-old son that. Son, I want you to be a problem, but be a good problem. Be a good problem. That's it. That's it. We talked about that yesterday. When the enemy, when the enemy, Jesus, I know, but Paul, I've heard of. Who are you? They knew of Paul. Does the enemy know of you? Does the enemy know your name? Are you just another guy that he can deal with? I tell you right now, when the enemy comes against me, and he does, but when the enemy comes against my family, against my marriage, against my ministry, he better bring two or three with him. Because I'm a problem. I'm trouble. But I'm good trouble. 
And just even starting to use that language, we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit in the next section, the language and the, and the theology behind this, the spaces and the way it's delivered. But, but even beginning to use that language, you will see a change in your men. You need to curate that. You need to guide it. You need to put in guardrails, right? We can't grab axes and start burning everything down. That would be a problem, a bad problem. It's don't underestimate the ministry of proximity. Just being near people. Don't underestimate that. Don't underestimate that. I was working with a young man. I was in a weight room not too long ago. This young man, 18 years old, he was a standout football player. He didn't get the offer that he wanted. And we're in the weight room at 6 o'clock in the morning. The strength coach is there. I'm there, and he's there. And we're getting it in, and I could tell something was bothering him. And finally, on his last set, he just broke down and just started weeping in the weight room. He had to walk out of the weight room, big garage door. He walked out, and he sat on a bench outside the weight room, and he just sat there bawling. And I watched the strength coach, who is not a believer. I watched the strength coach watch out, walk out sat down on the bench and just put his arm around him and they just both looked forward for an hour. He didn't say a word. And I just, it came to me, I said, man, never underestimate the ministry of proximity. Disciple Makers Podcast is brought to you by discipleship.org. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, please click the subscribe button for this channel. That way you can know each time that we release new episodes weekly and special episodes throughout the year. Coming up next, we got track session number three from Better Man. So make sure you stay tuned for that. All right, everybody, thanks for listening, and I hope that you have a fantastic day. See ya. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today.